And now, Virgin Most Powerful Radio is pleased to present Hands-On Apologetics with renowned Catholic author and apologist, Gary Machuda. And welcome everybody to Hands-On Apologetics. You have entered into Virgin Most Powerful's Apologetics Dojo. It's great to be with you today. Yes, it's Tuesday, and happy All Saints Day to all of you. And uh, hey, uh, as you know here on the show, we dive into explaining, defending the faith with clarity, charity, and confidence on a whole range of apologetic topics, everything from pseudo-Christian groups like Jehovah Witnesses, Mormons, to uh, mostly focus on Protestant Catholic dialogue. Uh, sometimes we dive into non-Christian religions and Christianity in general. And we also dive into theistic apologetics. And this has been an area of apologetics that, when I first started out defending the faith, uh, was really in mothballs. There really wasn't any uh, real activity in atheistic apologetics outside of academia. And these were books that were <laughs> largely, they were just uh, either professors in your local college uh, trying to make atheists out of their students or universities or just books gathering dust on a bookshelf. And all that changed at 9-11, where there was an explosion of popular atheistic apologetics, uh, which is commonly called the New Atheism. And since then, uh, thanks be to God, this area of apologetics has undergone a rebirth. And today we're going to have a guest that I think is a mover and shaker within that rebirth of Catholic theistic apologetics. It's our good friend Pat Flynn. Uh, the Pat Flynn Show, also Philosophy for the People on YouTube. And uh, as you know, Pat knows his stuff, and he knows it because he was once an atheist and a studied atheist at that. It wasn't uh, simply he thought it was a fun lifestyle or what have you. This is someone who actually read the material, was convinced of atheism, and it was really through his reading and consideration of atheism that caused him to reevaluate his position, ultimately to leave atheism and lead his way into the Catholic Church through one way or another. And it's a fascinating uh, conversion story. But because of that, he knows his stuff like the back of his hand when it comes to philosophical discussion. And he has a great YouTube channel. I'll give it another plug. Um, it's called the Philosophy for the People on YouTube, where he brings on guests and he himself dives into material, and they talk about all things philosophy. So it isn't necessarily theistic apologetics there. It covers a whole range of talking about Plato and Nietzsche and everything in between, right? So uh, it's just great stuff, and uh, it's awesome to have him on the show because every time he comes on, he is exploring new lines of arguments for the existence of God. Now, you guys know theistic apologetics is heavy lifting. Okay, so it may be difficult to, to follow his argumentation along, but don't worry because you can listen to this program over and over again through our uh, uh, 
either through our handy-dandy phone app or through our flagship website, which is Virgin Most Powerful Radio. So when he comes up on the other side of the break, we're going to have Pat Flynn come on. We're going to talk about revisiting the contingency argument, a whole line of argumentation for the existence of God. I know it's it's a line that uh, has fascinated Pat for quite some time. We're going to talk about how to use that argument to establish the existence of God. On this side of the break, we're going to do what we always do. We're going to have our finding the fallacy, which is the fallacy of proving too much. Also, we're going to meet an early church father who is Marius Makator. Marius Makator, no, not exactly a household name, which is why we do this uh, this segment in the show, you know, because it's good to know these people of antiquity. All that coming up today on Hands-On Apologetics. But before we do that, I want to welcome all of you to the show. Welcome aboard, everybody. Welcome to the Apologetics Dojo. It's great to have you on board. Um, also, I, as I mentioned, you know, sometimes in the show we do some really detailed work, either in history or philosophy or something like that. If you're driving in a car or you're taking care of kids, chances are you're going to miss some parts, and it's not going to make a lot of sense. So that's why I want to point you to this resource, which is virginmostpowerfulradio.org, because that is a great resource for you that you could re-listen to any program that Virgin Most Powerful produces at your own convenience. Listen to it multiple times, take notes, do all that stuff, and use it as an education tool. You can also, by the way, use it as an evangelization as well. So educate and evangelize all right there. Share links, tell people about it. That helps us, and it helps you, and helps them as well. Um, VirginMostPowerfulRadio.org. Also, I want to mention my official Dojo Mailbox website. Well, excuse me, address, not website. My website is HandsOnApologetics.com. The email is questions at HandsOnApologetics.com. That does come directly to me, the sensei. And I enjoy reading all of your emails. I try to respond to every one. Um, there are a few, actually, I need to get to. So if you recently emailed me, haven't got a response, uh, there's a reason for that. I have read them, and God willing, I'll get back to you. If it takes a really long time, you might want to resend it just in case. Because uh, I don't know. The email is a mysterious thing. It's like the Bermuda Triangle. <laughs> most of the pro- most uh, most uh, days of the year, no problem. But then there's this mysterious one where email goes missing for no apparent reason. I, I check my junk box. I, I check everything, folks, and still, you know, they just disappear. And I have a feeling, really, it has to do with my iPhone. I'm doing something weird on my iPhone. So if you haven't heard from me for a while, please shoot me another email. I'll be glad to get back to you. And thank you so much for your patience. All right, enough about that. Let's go to our finding the fallacy for today, which is proving too much fallacy. In philosophy, proving too much is a logical fallacy, which occurs when an argument reaches the desired conclusion in such a way as to make that conclusion only a special case or corollary consequence of a much larger, obviously absurd conclusion. Let me break this down very easy for you. Uh, the proving too much fallacy basically establishes its point, but if you follow that same line of reasoning, it establishes other points, including points that can't possibly be true. Um, 
so it, it's a it's a lack of proper qualification. Uh, they haven't qualified their argument in such a way as to uh, arrive at a single destination or at least desired destinations, but rather it's just too broad and it it will consist of absurdity. For example, here's a great example with my work on the Deuteronomy canon. Uh, somebody will say, unless uh, if a text is quoted in the New Testament, then that means it's canonical and inspired, which then they'll say, well, the Deuterocanon is never quoted, so that proves it's not inspired. And uh, But there's problems. It proves too much because there are also some proto-canonical books of the Old Testament that are shared by Catholics, Protestants, and Jews that are never quoted in the New Testament. And it also proves too much in that the New Testament quotes from books that no one accepts, or practically no one accepts as inspired, such as First Enoch. Jude quotes Enoch. So... If quotation equals inspiration, it proves too much because it proves that everybody's canon is wrong. And, of course, that can't be so. So the problem is it's not carefully qualified. It's too broad, and therefore it establishes points that are simply uh, would reach other untenable positions, such as, let's say, Enoch being an inspired book. And that's pretty much it, folks. That's uh, the proving too much fallacy. By the way, if it's ever used for you uh, <clears throat> or used on you, one thing you can point out is that the proving too much fallacy um, still doesn't uh, accomplish its goal as far as um, uh, establishing that your point's wrong. Okay, so if someone ever says, well, your argument proves too much. You can say that may be true, but it still establishes what I'm pointing out. I guess that's what it meant. I think I probably shouldn't have added that. That's actually more confusing than helpful. So uh, if you're listening to this program, just skip over that part next time you listen to it. <laughs> I should have thought that through. But there is a way where proving too much still can be somewhat valid. It's just not a perfect argument. Okay, let's go to meet our early church father for today, Marius Makator. Uh, in view of his relationship to Augustine, it is likely that Marius Makator was born an African, uh, lived for some time at Rome from whence in 418. He sent Augustine two treatises, not now extant, against the Pelagians. Pelagians denied the existence of original sin. <coughs> By 429 AD, uh, we have him leaving in, uh, le living in a Latin monastery in Thrace, where he wrote a number of works opposing Pelagianism and Nestorianism, largely for the benefit of his fellow monks. Besides composing numerous short writings of his own, he also translated a considerable number of Nestorian works from Greek into Latin in a slavishly literal manner, so that his fellow monks could see the genuine heresy of the Nestorians. Nestorians, by the way, were those who believed that Jesus had two natures, but in a sense he was also kind of two persons. There was a, a human person and a divine person in Jesus Christ, which of course is false because the correct orthodox understanding is that Christ is one divine person with two natures, a human nature and a divine nature. And uh, he wrote a memorandum against the heresy of Pelagius and Celestius, which is available uh, in uh, part, and you can read it on your own for free online.
And that is our early church father for today, Marius McCotor. Coming up next, Pat Flynn. We're going to talk about contingency. Now, back to Hands-On Apologetics with Gary Machuda. If you'd like to join the conversation, call 888-526-2151. Here's Gary. And welcome back, everybody. Hands-On Apologetics. And like I said, we're going to talk about theistic apologetics and specifically the contingency argument for the existence of God. Help us do that. We have a good friend, Pat Flynn, with us. Pat, as you know, is the host of the Pat Flynn Show, which covers everything from fitness to mental health to business to writing philosophy and theology. Best-selling author, philosopher, fitness coach, uh, magician, musician, that too, I guess. (laughs) Entrepreneur, I don't know why I keep messing that up. I, I I gotta highlight that on my text. He also expounds upon the theory of generalism and the general applicability of each and every one of us. And he has an amazing, popular uh, channel that I binge watch all the time. It's called Philosophy for the People. I highly recommend you check it out on YouTube. And Pat Flynn, welcome to the Pat Flynn Show. <laughs> Gary, it's always a joy to be here. You know, I was waiting for you to introduce me as a magician again, and then I I got nervous because I actually haven't learned a single magic trick since the last time you've done that. So I I apologize. I'm going to be a great disappointment to your viewers today. I've I've got nothing, not even a poor dad magic (laughs) trick. I tell you, I don't know. It's like a neuron misfires or something. Whenever <laughs> I, I read your bio, I always say magician instead of mu- musician. And you're a really good musician, too. I mean, it's amazing uh, the stuff you do on guitar. And uh, I'm envious. I wish you, you were uh, my age back when I was in a rock band because we definitely would have recruited you. <laughs> oh, well, thank you. That's that's very kind. I, I practice a lot. And uh, that's that's what my instructor told me. You know, do your eat your protein and do your push-ups and practice all the time, and uh, that's what I try to do. So, right? <laughs> yeah, yeah. So, uh, yeah. So, doing scales and pumping iron and uh, all the other things, including family and uh, and growing as I see the philosopher beard. What's yes. Well, it is uh, no shave November, and uh, officially starting today. So, can you imagine that, Gary? And uh, I mean, just oh. look at what have we done in such a short amount of time. It's incredible, isn't it? Yeah, it's great. And for those who who can't see, Pat's sporting a beard, reminiscent of I would say Paul McCartney in the Let It Be album cover. If you okay, you, yeah, nostalgia. No, I, that's, that's yeah, which is yeah. a mighty fine beard indeed. So, mm-hmm. uh, so it's all good. And and beards and philosophy go hand in hand as well. They do, and uh, I'm really just trying to keep up with my other philosopher friends. Gavin and all these strong bearded fellows. I've never been much of a beard guy myself, but we're giving it a chance this season, so we'll see how it goes. Okay, good. How does Christine feel about it, by the way? <laughs> well, it's it's funny. She actually likes beards uh, quite oh, a bit. Okay. Her, her dad has a beard, and and she's 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 pro beard. So actually, she's the one who really encouraged me to do it. So right. yeah, here, yeah. So we'll see. <laughs> it's all good. It's all good. Mm-hmm. All right. So contingency argument. I know. Of all the arguments, it seems like, uh, correct me if I'm wrong, but I think that's probably one of your favorite lines of argument is contingency. Yeah, it is. You know, it's the argument that really first got me interested in natural theology when I first even became aware that the question of God's existence was something that was argued about by philosophers and that, you know, through the grand tradition of philosophy, you see various types of arguments that fall under this this style of argumentation. You know, it's not really the contingency argument. 
it's like the contingency arguments. It's a family. It's a class of, of arguments. And we'll explain what that is in a minute. But no, this is the one that really first got my interest and eventually convinced me. You know, I came to see, yeah, I think there I think there is a sound contingency argument. It's the one that I've thought about the most. It's the one I continue to think about. And, you know, uh, years ago, I, I may have thought that, OK, there was probably just maybe just one good argument for God, just just, you know, this sort of contingency argument. Uh, but my thought has expanded on that. I, th- I think there's actually within the sort of family of contingency type, ar- type arguments, there's a couple of different paths now that I think are successful and that I've been exploring lately. I think they, they're related in important ways, and maybe we could explore those relationships uh, a little bit. Uh, but no, yeah, I'm, I'm a big fan, a uh, big fan of this type of argument. I think it is a good argument. I think it's a very powerful argument, and it's an important argument because it, it, it essentially tries to answer the question, how come anything, right? Sometimes you hear, why is there something rather than nothing? Uh, that's a pretty big question, and if you think that question is meaningful and you think that question is interesting, uh, then it's the tradition of contingency type arguments that try to account for that, that try to answer that that big question. Right. Now, was that Mortimer Adler's, like, he felt that was the one like successful argument that convinced him was the why is there anything contingency argument? I'm yeah, so he's he's got this book called How to Think About God, and it was in fact one of the first books I read in natural theology. And by natural theology, we mean yeah, just just using reason to try and reach a theological conclusion. So it's separate from revealed theology. It's really a philosophical discipline. And what Adler does in that book is is he says, look, there's all these traditional arguments for God, and he does look at some of Aquinas's, and he presents some objections to them. Objections, which I thought sounded pretty good at the time, but as I went deeper into Aquinas, I actually think Adler was was wrong on those points. But but setting that aside, he then later presents uh, his own version of the contingency argument, and he and what he does is he he argues that the universe is sort of radically contingent, and we know this because it it could have been otherwise, right? And he kind of holds to this basic explanatory principle that anything that could have been otherwise could not have been at all. And it does, in fact, demand an account of why it why it is, in fact. Right. So so kind of in the background for Adler is some sort of explanatory principle based on this deep intuition that we have that the universe could have been otherwise. And that itself signifies the universe's contingency or need for an extrinsic explanation of why it is rather than not. And uh, it's an interesting book. I think it's a good book. Um, I don't uh, articulate or defend the the contingency arg- argument in the way that Adler does specifically, uh, but I owe I owe a lot to Adler because he got me really thinking about this. He's one of the first guys that that really got me thinking about natural theology and arguments for the existence of God and and stuff like that. So I still very much recommend his book on the topic. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah, very good. Yeah, I, I always for some reason that always stuck with me. I thought it was interesting that he thought that was the most. Uh, successful of the ways, but I agree with you too. He got Aquinas wrong in a couple areas. But anyway, uh, enough about that. Let's talk about uh, what areas do you see as promising lines of argument in contingency umbrella? Yeah, I think one way to think about it is to divide it into two um, families of contingency argument. Maybe we should start with some just basic introductory ideas. When, When we talk about something being contingent, we just are really saying that something is, but it need not have been. Right. Okay. It, it, it doesn't it doesn't really sort of explain itself. It's not self-explanatory, especially concerning its its existence. Right. So lots of contingent things. I've got this coffee. It's contingent. I'm contingent. 
uh, Ingve Malmsteen, one of my favorite guitarists. He's awesome. We're glad he's here, but he didn't have to be, right? Um, so what the way I like to think about contingency arguments is either in the tradition of Leibniz or in the tradition of Thomas Aquinas. And the tradition of Leibniz kind of proceeds like this. Um, Leibniz will say, look, there's something that's true about the world, and that something is that uh, things have an adequate explanation, right, for, for, for why they are. Actually, Leibniz is stronger about this. He, he holds a very strong notion of what's called the principle of sufficient reason. But people following Leibniz say at least some, some version of what's called the principle of sufficient reason is true, and maybe modestly would say that um, anything that exists has an adequate uh, reason for its existence, and that will either be due to that thing's sort of internal nature, if it has a very sort of special nature uh, that can explain its own existence, or some sort of extrinsic cause, right? And the way these types of arguments work is they'll first sort of explain this explanatory principle, and then they will often defend it and say, here's why this explanatory principle is true, and then they will apply it. So they might say, okay, there's an explanatory principle, and it demands that all contingent things, anything of the type contingent, is a sort of thing that requires an extrinsic cause or explanation or what have you, right? And then they'll take that principle and they'll kind of mush together all the contingent facts and things, right? And say, look, the only thing that can explain why there's anything of the type contingent is something that itself cannot be contingent, and that just leaves us with a necessary thing, right? So this is sort of like stage one of cosmological reasoning. Contingent things have a cause, smush them all together, apply the explanatory principle, there must be a necessary thing, otherwise there would be no contingent things. But there are contingent things, so there must be a necessary thing. But then you sort of have to do further work uh, to um, establish that that necessary thing is God. So some, oftentimes in the contemporary literature, these sort of Leibnizian-style uh, cosmological arguments are broken out into those two phases. One is moving from the contingent to the necessary, and that often involves a lot of defense of this explanatory principle and then applying it and then, you know, uh, getting around other objections that may come up, like what about infinite regress and stuff like that. We can talk about that here in a minute if we want. Um, and then it's like, OK, well, even if there is a necessary thing, why should we think that that thing is God? Right. And then that's where you kind of do all the moves that Aquinas, but Leibniz also does as well to show, well, to be a necessary thing would demand having a very special sort of nature. If we follow Aquinas, its nature would just have to be the sort of thing whose essence just is its existence that, that exists in a, in a in the most robust way possible in a way that's automatically actual. Um, and then as the sort of cause of everything else that, that could exist, we can start to infer things like omnipotence and, and there's other moves you can make to get to omniscience and, and, uh, perfect goodness and stuff like that. It takes more metaphysical unpacking and we can do that later on. Let me just get the, the sketch on the table. But the point is, is that thinkers in this tradition, both of these, the Leibnizian and the Thomistic one, they do give arguments for why this necessary thing or the thing that's explaining all the contingent things um, not just probably as God, but in fact, must possess divine attributes to be a necessary thing, right? Otherwise, it just it would slip back into that category of caused being, right? Mm -hmm. So that's the that's the Leibnizian approach. And again, just to summarize, it sort of begins with a general explanatory principle, applies it to a sort of class of beings or, or entities, typically contingent beings, right? But there's other formulations as well. Gets some gets something else sort of proven, if you will, like a necessary being. And then argues why that necessary being must be God. That's that. That's that approach. The Thomistic approach, and this is where my thought has developed on this um, 
Gary, is I used to thought, well, the Thomistic approach sort of is the Leibnizian approach, but Aquinas wasn't really explicit about the PSR. It's sort of just running in the background. Um, so that's just really, they're all just sort of the same argument at the end of the day. I actually, I actually don't think that anymore. Um, I think there's versions of Thomistic um, arguments that definitely do either assume or even outright defend the PSR. But I actually think in on Thomas's worldview, you can you can run an argument to God that does not depend on the PSR, does not does not require you to defend up front some sort of broad explanatory uh, principle. But it does require you to see the world uh, metaphysically the way that Thomas Aquinas does. Right. So. Either way, you're going to have your work cut out for you, right? Either you're going to have to defend your explanatory principle up front, or you're going to have to do some metaphysics up front, which will then kind of set you up for a a, 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 a demonstration for God's existence. And just to sketch how I think this works with Aquinas, Aquinas is committed to what's sometimes known as a constituent ontology. He thinks that beings like us, Gary, finite, contingent beings, are actual metaphysical composites, right? That we have an essence part our sort of what part, you know, our what determination, right, that accounts for what we are. But we also have an existence part. And the existence part is what sort of makes our essence actual, if you will. I hear the music coming up, so I'll, I'll hit pause there before I, I get too deeper into this because it would be annoying yeah. to go any further. <laughs> right. Exactly. We're chatting with Pat Flynn, talking about the contingency argument. More to come right after this. Stay tuned. This is Jesse Romero. You're listening to Hands-On Apologetics with Gary Machuda on Virgin Most Powerful Radio. And welcome back, everybody, to the show. We're talking with Pat Flynn of Philosophy for the People and uh, talking about contingency arguments. And right before the break, Pat, you laid out uh, how Leibniz would lay out a contingency argument. And then you were talking about uh, Aquinas and uh, how Aquinas ultimately breaks things down into uh, that we are composites. They're made of uh, existence and nature or essence, existence and essence. And uh, and then the break came up. And so you got those two principles down, I guess. Let's unpack that a little bit. Yeah. So it usually helps with examples. So let's think of let's think of Thumper the Rabbit, Gary. Remember, we remember and dearly miss Thumper the Rabbit. Right. So Thumper the Rabbit, Aquinas would say, is is a composite entity, is composite not just of act and potency, but fundamentally, like you go right down into the, the engine room of being itself. Uh, he has two really distinct metaphysical constituents. He has his essence, his thumperness, if you will, and an act of existence that makes him present in reality. So this is Aquinas' uh, really quite fundamental theory, and I think a beautiful and correct observation about how to make sense of the existence of of individual entities that things actually have individual existence existence is something that individuals like us have and this is very different than a sort of modern analysis of existence which uh which often denies that tries to say that existence is something we just say of like concepts so it, it actually doesn't certain skeptics would say it doesn't really make sense to say that thumper exists that's unsophisticated folk language you see gary what we really mean is that there's something of the sort rabbit of the concept concept rabbit and there's at least one of those instantiated right aquinas would see that as nonsense i think it's nonsense i actually think that it presupposes aquinas's account of existence because there has to be something in virtue of which that concept is instantiated and that's clearly an individual with existence right that's present in reality and then we can say well okay um is that individual just identical to its existence and that seems clearly absurd right because 
Thumper, sadly, is no longer with us. He's gone, right? He doesn't exist anymore. By the way, I found an old picture of, of Thumper on my phone. I'll have to share that with you. Uh, awesome. But yeah, sadly, Thumper is gone. He doesn't exist anymore. So Thumper isn't sort of automatically actual. So we can't identify Thumperness with existence. Otherwise, they're just it would just have to be there. And that's clearly not the case. Nor can we eliminate the notion of existence because then we lose that thereby which we're able to affirm that Thumper actually exists, is is distinguished and distinguishable uh, from nothingness or mere possibility. So what Aquinas holds at the end of the day is, yeah, you have two really distinct sort of metaphysical co-principles here at work. There is Thumper and Thumper's existence. Now, here's the, the kind of the tricky but cool part, right? When we say that Thumper exists, we're predicating exists of Thumper. Right. However, mm -hmm. uh, that predicate exists is clearly dependent upon Thumper. It's only meaningful in relation to Thumper. So Thumper's existence is dependent and it's dependent upon Thumper. Really, it's dependent upon Thumper to sort of bound or pattern or shape or if we can use a clunky word to thumperize existence. Right. <laughs> to, 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 to make existence thumperize, that that makes sense. This is sort of how Aquinas sees it. Right. Right. But now we actually kind of reach an absurdity. Right. If we think about it just considering thumper himself because thumper's existence depends upon thumper yeah thumper apart from existence is what nothing he's nothing apart from his existence so all right now we have a problem thumper's existence clearly depends upon thumper so it's it's a dependent thing right but thumper apart from his existence is nothing so we're saying that something is at once dependent yet dependent upon nothing but to be dependent upon nothing is just not to be dependent at all. That's a straightforward right. contradiction. It is both dependent and not dependent. So what what I think is in Aquinas's metaphysical system is something I've tried to develop myself. I don't I don't find in Aquinas anywhere an explicit articulation of this. But later, Thomas had thought about this. Right. Is that if you just look at Thumper in and of himself, he actually appears to be a contradictory structure that could not exist unless he's caused to exist. Unless there's an explanation for Thumper's existence that isn't just Thumper that can bring these co-principles into reality sort of whole and complete, if you will, right? Because Thumper, in a sense, is sort of more basic to Thumper's existence in the sense that Thumper's existence depends upon Thumper. Yet Thumper's nothing apart from his existence, so he can't individuate or bound his existence. The only other option is either this thing is contradictory and can't exist or there's an extrinsic cause of Thumper's existence, if that makes sense. And that's not relying on the principle of sufficient reason, right? But we can extend that analysis to say, well, that's going to be the case for anything that's like Thumper, right? Of any contingent individual. And the only thing that could make it the case that anything like Thumper just is at all is when we do smush those things together. When we do get something whose essence just is its existence, right? That is just fully, automatically actual. And then for Aquinas, he's going to say, yeah, we have to affirm that thing, given the fact that there are things like Thumper. There must be this entity because it's the only sufficient condition for being like thumper and that sufficient condition must be there because thumper is there right it's just a matter of empirical fact if it wasn't there thumper wouldn't be there and if its essence is existence then again with aquinas's background metaphysics you can actually pretty swiftly deduce the divine attributes there because essence and existence relate as potency uh and act uh, uh in contingent individuals like us so sort of thumper is just a sort of potential being until his active existence actualizes, uh, he's actualized by his actual uh, active existence, if you will. But if there is a being whose essence just is existence, that potency side sort of gets pushed out. 
it's purely actual. And then Aquinas has his, you know, sort of famous barrage of arguments of why a purely actual reality would have to be God. It's non-multipliable. It can't be by, be determined by anything beyond itself. So it's utterly unique. It's it's omnipotent because everything else that exists or could exist uh, depends for its existence upon that thing, right? So all possible, it, it, it can, it is responsible for producing or bringing about any possibility of being. That's tech, textbook omnipotence. Aquinas thinks you can also get omniscience by looking at the essences of things, right? There's these forms and patterns in the world and whatever is sort of in the effect must in some way be in the cause, but these forms and patterns can't be in the total in the total cause, I should say. Uh, that's an important clarification. They they can't be in the cause in a material way because for Aquinas's metaphysics to have a to contain a, a a form or an essence in a material way just is to be that that thing, right? To be right. the the bunny rabbit or what have you. So the only other option is it must be contained in an immaterial way or an intentional way, in a way that sort of mind uh, holds notions of of form and universality, right? So that's how Aquinas gets to the purely actual reality, not just as a minded entity or a mind-like entity, but an omniscient one, because it's going to have, it's going to, in understanding itself, it's going to understand all the possibilities of being, and then it chooses to obviously bring some of those uh, possibilities about, and it, it knows itself, so it knows its own actions, so it knows that Thumper's in his cage because it's causing Thumper to be in its cage, right? So its knowledge is executive. It's perfectly good for Aquinas because Aquinas holds to the convertibility between goodness and being. Aquinas thinks that goodness and being are the same in reference. Uh, they just differ, differ in sense, that goodness just is being under the guise of perfection, specifically like a, a, a species-specific perfection, if you will. Long story short, if something is purely actual, has no unrealized potentials or privations, it's just going to turn out to be purely good. So that's a kind of sketch, anyway, of how Aquinas moves from that which would just be uh, whose essence just would be its existence to actually necessarily having all the divine attributes of being the god of classical theism. There's other ones I left out, like it would have to be immutable because change requires the actualization of potency. This thing is purely actual, so it just wouldn't undergo change immaterial because materiality actually uh, is a principle of potency doesn't have that as well so you get immateriality immutability simplicity uh omnipotence omniscience and perfect goodness so i think at that point it's it's pretty safe to say okay that's that's definitely what we mean when we're talking about god so as you can see aquinas's path is a bit more complex metaphysically up front but i think it's actually a really cool uh, I think it's really cool, and I think it definitely is different than the Leibnizian way, and is is a is an independent, successful path of arguing for God apart from that Leibnizian tradition. If that makes sense. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah, very good. Well, you scored two extra points, Pat. First, the, you went around the uh, omniscience aspect, which is, uh, you know, there's lots of twists and turns. You did an excellent job explaining that, and of course. You coined the the word thumperize, which I, I'm going to see if I could get that in a dictionary somewhere. So that please thumperization, I guess, would be the process of being thumperized. Excellent. So so Aquinas is successful. How would you categorize the Leibnizian approach? Would you say that's also successful? Yeah, no, I definitely think it is. So I think this is the the cool thing. Uh, and again, that sort of depends. I think the Leibnizian approach definitely depends on demonstrating the truth of the principle of sufficient reason, whereas the approach that I gave, which is more in line with Aquinas, does not. However, Aquinas' approach depends upon, like, 
doing that up front to mystic metaphysics. So again, either way, you're going to have your work cut out for you. But I think, no, I think that there's very good reasons to believe that the principle of sufficient reason is true. I think that all the arguments against it are very bad ones and often misunderstand the principle of sufficient reason, or at least the a principle of sufficient reason that is strong enough to get you to God's existence. Um, but just to give an idea uh, of some of the motivations in favor of the principle of sufficient reason uh one might just be inference to the best explanation uh so for example just to clarify for the listeners the denial of the principle of sufficient reason just is the positive brute facts right so these things are at odds so the skeptic who's denying the principle of sufficient reason is ultimately willing to say that hey there might be something out there whatever that is that yeah it seems like the sort of thing that requires further explanation i don't know maybe it's ingve malmstein and it just doesn't have one, right? Ingve's just there, and that's just the end of the story. Deal with it, right? And if the principle of sufficient reason is true, there are no brute facts, and those who posit brute facts are ultimately denying the, the principle of sufficient reason, right? I, that's an important clarification. So anyways, uh, you might think that inference to the best explanation uh, is a good motivation. Like, things just don't seem to pop into existence from nowhere, right? Uh, the world certainly seems to behave as if the principle of sufficient reason is true. Why is the world so sort of stable and orderly? Well, it seems like that's exactly what we'd expect if PSR is true. It's not what we would expect if PSR is false. I would kind of expect Ingve Malmsteins to maybe just be popping about all over the place and get right. all those awesome sweet picking arpeggios along with it. Uh, but I think there's deeper actual uh, retorsion arguments you can give where if you deny the principle of sufficient reason, you ultimately wind up in a sort of radical self-undermining skepticism once you admit that there could be brute facts, that things could just occur for no reason whatsoever, that could include your perceptual experiences. It could include the inferences you make, the thoughts you're having, the beliefs you have at any moment that are in no way linked up to reality or even the canons of logic, even if they falsely appear to be so. So you actually wind up in these radically skeptical scenarios that would cast out on reason itself, including reason to deny the PSR. So I think those are the, some of the strongest reasons to accept PSR. Excellent. Excellent. We're chatting with Pat Flynn of the uh, philosophy of the people. More to come right after this. Now, back to Hands-On Apologetics with Gary Machuda. If you'd like to join the conversation, call 888-526-2151. Here's Gary. And welcome back, everybody. We are chatting with Pat Flynn, Philosophy for the People on YouTube, talking about contingency arguments. And, uh, yeah, so, uh, uh, man, uh, you really covered a lot of ground in the last couple of minutes of the last segment uh, about PSR. And ultimately, if you deny the PSR, you're kind of just cutting the branch that you're sitting on because then you have no rational grounds for denying the PSR. Yes, I think that's right. I think ultimately it is self-defeating and leads to a quite catastrophic skepticism if you try to get out of the PSR. And there's many other motivations we can give in, in favor of it, um, including that it just seems like even those people who deny the PSR seem to operate according to it especially yeah. when they're doing philosophy and science until it starts to lead to God, right? Once once God starts <laughs> popping up on the radar, right, then they want to just sort of arbitrarily cut it off. And that just seems really ad hoc, right? That seems like special pleading. Uh -huh. Right, right, yeah. So uh, that received a lot of criticism in the literature, but uh, I agree with you. I don't think it's successful, ultimately. Uh, what about Thomas Aquinas's existence and essence argument? Um, that's probably his lesser known 
uh, proof mm-hmm. for the existence of God. Has there been any uh, uh, pushback in that area? Uh, well, I certainly see lots of discussion in, in places, and it's similar to the one that, that I developed. Um, it depends who you're, who you're reading on it, but oftentimes people will start by arguing for Aquinas's real distinction from uh, different areas, right? So they might say, and by real distinction, we mean a real distinction between essence and existence, which we talked about earlier. Right. Um, one will, you know, some will say, hey, well, when we grasp the essence of, of Thumper, we don't grasp Thumper's existence. And isn't this uh, enough um, to show that there's a real distinction between the two? Uh, I think it is, but I think you got to do a lot of work there to um, obviate certain objections uh, against that and just um so i don't typically take that path even though i think it's successful i think it's it's better just to hmm. um go to the latter part of deente it's in aquinas's deente where he argues hypothetically first if there is something whose essence is existence it it, it couldn't be multiplied right it could only be something that is i like the term uniquely unique right if its essence just is its existence then there's there's nothing that could sort of differentiate one instance of this from another because if you had just suppose hypothetically you have two of these things you have um one thing whose essence just is existence and another thing whose essence just is existence called frank and bob right well what differentiates that well the first one would have to be individuated by frank whatever that is and the other one would have to be individuated by bob and that shows that both of these things really are distinct Right. Their existence is distinct from their essence. So you can kind of run these different thought experiments to show that it's it's fundamentally absurd to try and posit more than one reality whose essence just is its existence. And that means if anything actually exists, whose essence just is its existence, it would be uniquely unique. Whereas anything that is multipliable, where there could be more than one instance of that sort of thing, like rabbits, like Thumper, that is enough for us to infer that 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 sort of thing is not the necessary being uh, that we're looking for. I think that's I think that's the strongest path to take. It strikes me that Aquinas thought that was the strongest path to take. There's a lot of debate uh, over over that that previous path that I mentioned. Um, but but it is important to to understand uh, that Aquinas first sets it up as a hypothetical, right? That if there is something whose essence is its existence, then it would just be uniquely unique. And then and then later he argues there has to be this sort of thing. Otherwise, we don't have an adequate grounding of things like Thumper, the rabbit and, and what have you. Mm-hmm. Right. Yeah. Yeah. Very good. And and that's I think that would be expected that uh, that the most fundamental, most primary uh, non-contingent thing, necessary thing would have to be one. You know, mm. it's it's hard to see multiple points that would you know, what I mean. It it almost stands to reason that it would be utterly singular, right? You know, I yeah, I, I agree that there's a lot of good arguments. For that. I think the the best ones are those um, metaphysical ones, right? Uh, that show yeah. in principle there couldn't be more than one of these called fundamental realities whose essence just is its existence. Some people want to appeal to like Occam's razor and principles of simplicity, and that's that's interesting, but I, I don't think that's anywhere near as as demonstrative as the sort of roll up your sleeves and let's just get to work with the metaphysics to show no in principle if there's something of this sort then it cannot be be one and i think that's i think that's really i think that's actually really important to do i think there's a lot of theoretical benefits to that uh one it does tend to actually have the theoretical advantage of simplicity because if you're a classical theist following aquinas then a lot of people who engage in worldview comparison think that simplicity matters most on the fundamental level well aquinas just argued that 
the classical theist only has one fundamental entity and depending how you think about it, it either has like one or zero properties, right? Which is like really slim and and awesome uh, in terms of, yeah, uh, having a very simple fundamental theory. And it's going to be hard for other theories uh, to compete with that, at least concerning that theoretical virtue. I think the theoretical virtue of explanatory comprehensiveness is obviously superior when it comes to theism. But I would argue that theism can not only explain more, but it can explain more with with less as well. At least classical right. theism, as Aquinas articulates it. Mm -hmm. Yeah, you were on. I think it was last time we explored that that uh, that ultimately there's so many different working parts, you know, mm -hmm. for say an atheist, you know, theory on uh, how everything could exist without God, as opposed to a very parsimonious Aquinas, right? That there's only a couple of working parts in the argument and. So it has a it has a plausibility, initial plausibility, even before you start going into all the different steps. And not only that, but Aquinas's account gives us like a deeper account of, of how something's necessary in the first place, which I yeah. find uh, an important thing to give an account of. Right. Because some naturalists will say, oh, yeah, there's some necessary reality. It's just it's just not God. But they don't have a good account of how the thing that they posit could be necessary, especially how any physical reality could be necessary. That just seems just um there's, there's nothing relevantly different about any physical reality, whether it came first, for example, in the sequence of events that would seem to be an adequate explanation of why it's necessary. Whereas Aquinas does give relevant differences, right? This thing is non-composite. Its essence just is its existence. Um, and that seems like a really good account of how something could be necessary in this really robust sense. Uh, so for me, it's not enough just to call something necessary and then go eat dinner, right? If you're going to call something necessary, you have to give an account of how and how is this thing necessary? What grounds its right. necessity? And to my mind, Aquinas gives the absolute best account of that. And I think you do need to have a necessary reality. Uh, the other thing, too, is, you know, just for the uh, if you're I guess you're taking the Leibnizian path, you know, you could you could still, I think, issue an argument that there could only be one truly necessary reality, some realities might have a derivative necessity, but whatever that fundamental necessary reality is, again, if you try to think that there are like two of these things, there's again, there's got to be some difference between them, some additional feature atop that their necessary nature with they share in common. Right. And then we can ask, well, how could this difference attain? And there's only one of two ways. Either the difference is contingent or the difference is necessary. Right. If the, right. If the difference is contingent, this contradicts it being a metaphysically necessary being. Right. Alternatively, if the differences are necessary to each, then one lacks an essential feature that the other has on account of having a necessary nature, and it's not actually necessary to begin with. And that's a contradiction, right? So I think you can work it out just from the, the notion of necessity as well. I just prefer Aquinas, as I think Aquinas' uh, analysis is a, is a bit deeper and more robust. I actually think Aquinas' account at the end of the day really helps to shore up a lot of the Leibnizian path. Aquinas's account can give us, uh, I think, an even more robust reason of why the PSR is true, right? Because once we have God's existence from the sort of Thomistic path, um, we can give an explanation of the PSR, right? So God can get us to PSR from Aquinas's path, whereas Leibniz's path is moving from PSR to God, if that makes sense. Mm -hmm. Yeah, no, that, that makes perfect sense, too. And I think Aquinas's path, you know, there's always the danger of us sneaking in imagination when we're thinking about God on you know, this philosophical level. Mm -hmm. And that always causes problems because I think people try to imagine the arguments in their head. And, uh, and for Leibniz's approach, it's very abstract and difficult 
to work through, at least for uh, somebody who's not familiar with the material, mm-hmm. where I think essence and existence, uh, like Tom Aquinas can use uh, physical objects and, and, you know, by pulling out certain questions about, you know, like thumper and thumperization and so on, right? <laughs> that will ultimately lead you to this, where I think Leibniz is, is much more, oh, I, I don't know, abstract or uh, theoretical, you know, that you can't really have concrete examples that you can move through. Yeah. Yeah. No, I, I think that's probably right, Gary. And uh, I guess I, yeah, in terms of presentation, which one, which one would I be more likely to present to, you know, a non-philosophical audi- audience? And I don't know. I just present whatever I'm excited about. I'm usually pretty yeah. self-indulgent. Um, <laughs> but I think <laughs> I think you're right. I think I would rather go with Thomas's account because I think it's it's closer to closer to common experience, if you will. Right. Uh huh. Now, at the end of the day, right, you, you know, you can get pretty, you know, you can get into the real tall grass of metaphysics. So that's just that's just always going to be challenging for anybody. Uh, but that's the fun of it, I think. You know, the the cool thing, uh, if I can, you know, leave anybody with anything is, you know, I've been thinking about these arguments for a long, long time, many, many years. And the good thing about thinking about arguments like this is not only are you trying to get at fundamental rea- fundamental reality, which is a really important thing to think about, but it, it demands you um, to think about a lot of other things that might seem unrelated at first and get clarity on those other things. I'll just give you one example. I mean, think of freedom of the will, right? Because one objection is that the principle of sufficient reason is incompatible with the freedom of the will. And the sort of, yeah, the assumption there is that if a, if an explanation doesn't determine or necessitate its effect, then we don't have an explanation. And I think that's, I think that's false, right? I think what we should say is that an explanation can ground its effect that causes do not need to be determining. They don't need to necessitate things. And this is obviously the case in freedom of the will, where as a personal agent, I can exercise you know, certain powers and make things come about, even if I didn't have to. But it's still giving an explanation of why those things came about. So, you know, right. all that all that being said is like you go deeper into these arguments, they'll, they'll, they'll oftentimes shoot you off into areas that might not seem initially related, but then you'll gain, I think, a lot of. Uh, illumination there, which can then kind of feed back into the argument and just some, and like you said, with, with PSR, that, that has a really fundamental role, I think in epistemology. So you slide from metaphysics to epistemology. Ultimately what I'm saying is it forces you to be a good generalist. And I think if you're going to be a philosopher, you should, you should try to be a generalist for oh, sure. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And and that's what makes philosophy fun. It's like hunting for gold, you know, this undiscovered gold out there, uh, following these paths of, uh, lo- argument and so on. Uh, we only have a couple of minutes left. Tell us a little bit about uh, what's going on in philosophy for the people. Yeah, lots of good stuff. Just had Father James Dominic Rooney on to talk about his critique of David Bentley Hart's universalism. So that's the latest episode. Going to be kicking off a series on Plato's Dialogue and hope to have Gary on soon. I'll hey. have to send you an email, Gary, and get you on the show again soon. I'd love to chat with you on my on my platform. Absolutely. I'd love to. Uh, and uh, hey, thank you so much for coming on the show. This is awesome. Thank you. Always a joy. All right, Pat Flynn, check it out. Philosophy of the People. Sub, like, you know, tell your friends about it. It's great stuff. Talk about great stuff coming up next. The Terry and Jesse Show High Impact Catholic Talk coming at you. Thank you so much for listening. Bye-bye. <laughs>